Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts. Tanus Alpinus. New Earth Relic. Oh, there's the fan. Hi, fan. First time we hear the fan this year, if you can hear it. I don't know. Actually, no. Oh, really? Oh, it sounded louder to me. Wow. No, that's usually the way, right? We're the ones that tell you about the fan. Yeah. Uh. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to the 298th episode of Polycast. I'm regular co-host Dan Q, and joined by regular co-host Makalua. What? Turning guests New Earth Relic. I apparently am secretly Phil, as we have never been seen together in the same place or stream. And Canis Albinus. Uh, what? I'm sorry, Canis Albinus. Doesn't matter. The me and team, third regular co-host, is unavailable, not feeling well, and our new fourth regular co-host, Mega Bears fan, is going to join us in March. So, that is that, but oh my gosh, do we have a lot of things to talk about. Dear 2K, I guess uh, the New Year's resolution we talked about, where you would coordinate timing with us, I guess hasn't kicked in yet, so you might want to get on that. <sighs> Can we create the Curse of Dan, where every time that we have a polycast recording, they immediately followed up about three <laughs> days later with a giant announcement? And we even shifted this year's recording schedule by one week, and yet still... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they have some sort of secret Dan stalker at 2K, whose only job it is is to figure out when Dan does these recordings and schedule around it. That's the only way that's possible for that to happen. I don't know. If that is your job, you are earning your pay, sir. Or ma'am. <laughs> i tell you what. <laughs> Every time. Tried to do that to prevent that for this year, but no. While all this is going on, apparently Aspire Media, the long-standing porter of Civilization titles to the Mac and Linux, have brought out Civilization VI, the full port, over to the iPad. And other than the fact that it costs $60 and doesn't include any downloadable content. So this is just vanilla Civ 6 through and through. It's actually been receiving some pretty rave reviews. So there you go. It is possible for a Civilization port to be done well and right from the outset. And given some of the negativity that has been leveled against Aspire and also some of the negativity that Aspire has expressed publicly back towards 2K and Firaxis in terms of timeliness of things, mm-hmm. it's nice to have some positive news on the <laughs> Mac front <laughs> for Civ. Yep. Oh, we probably also need an iPad to play it, too. I'm, I'm just going to throw that out there, which might be an additional cost. Probably. Let's get to it. Civ 6, Rise and Fall. Daughter, the path has not always been easy, but you have never faltered. Ours is a journey that spans generations. Where one story ends, another begins. The world our ancestors faced was brutal. Yet from it, they drew life. And though the road to prosperity was at times harsh,
of it. Great civilizations arose. those who would oppose them with dreams of conquest of their own. It's an expansion pack. It's got a whole bunch of new leaders. It's got a whole bunch of new mechanics. It's got a whole bunch of pretty much everything. It looks to be pretty similar to Gods and Kings from Civ Five in terms of adding a whole lot of useful new stuff. And it's going to be released very, very soon. I mean, this was announced at the end of November, and we get it two months later on... February 8th, 2018, which is, through my powers of arithmetic, uh, three weeks away, four weeks away. So what that's going to mean for Polycast is on this episode, we're going to prioritize talking about the new civilizations, or the first looks, as they're also known as. And then on the next episode, we're going to try to cover <laughs> adequately everything that is not civilization-specific, because we also have a few other things that we want to talk about. And then when we record our third episode, we'll be talking about our first impressions of this expansion pack. So I guess, in a way, the timing helped us, because we can talk about most of the new civilizations that are to be included in this expansion pack, and we might as well get started with the one that was announced first. Korea, yes. A name I am not going to try and pronounce, because <laughs> it would come out completely wrong. It appears to be uh, Sondok. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we still have Dan's favorite unit. I don't know. What could that possibly be? Oh, wait, I know. Watcha! <laughs> oh, they get ship my... again? No, this Dan's favorite thing to say. Uh, they've got the Sewan districts. Uh, it's plus six science. It's the replacement for the uh, campus district. Plus six, as soon as you're able to build those in the early game. Uh, yeah, hi. I'll take that. Isn't that as much as university plus library together? I think so. So that's like, uh, yeah. You're but every be... district you build next to it reduces that number. Oh, so you have to make sure it's isolated off in the mountains. Yeah. It must be on hills. I can deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, there's a lot of places times when you get hills under rainforests, so there you go. Because you don't always get hills next to mountains, necessarily. Skipped ahead past the watch out of there, but movement of two, combat strength 30, range strength of 50, and two range. But you do have to get to gunpowder to get that. And like anything else that's the range unit at that point, you cannot move and fire at the same turn. Yeah, I'm kind of confused on the watch shot. It seems like a cheaper, worse, and later bombard. Is the big advantage to it just the fact that it's like half production? Probably so. It's a cheap bombard. So you could yeah. spam it out a lot faster. than Because I, I know just from practical experience that when you get to the point where you're building the bombards, it takes forever. It feels like forever. Even on quick speed, it feels like forever to get that. Yeah. Honestly, I don't think I've ever built bombards. I usually just buy them with dollar bills. <laughs> <laughs> I go with the Dan strategy of campus and uh, commercial districts everywhere mm -hmm. and just buy everything. The Civ special ability is Three Kingdoms, which is Mines Yield Plus One Science and Farms Yield Plus One Food if built adjacent to that special campus district. Yeah, it's really See, strong. That's very strong. Yeah, if you're building one up next to a mountain, you're going to have probably have some hills next to it that you mine. I guess if you got lucky and you had a hill district that's surrounded by a bunch of farms, you could get extra food that way. But I, I don't know so much about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it really depends on your starting terrain. Like, as you said, there could be, if you're near a mountain, then you could have a mine. Uh, and there's probably got some kind of flat land nearby. So that could actually be something where, oh, this is planes. This is five planes. It's only getting me, me plus two food for right now mm-hmm. uh, until I get a later on in the technology tree. Well, if you build it next to CU1, then it will now be plus three. And that can help build your city more, which would be the more attractive equivalent of a grassland, let alone a grassland itself becoming plus four, etc. So while it is very mm, placement dependent, that unique district for a campus, seeing as how I would argue campus versus encampment, but at some point early on, you should be building a campus. And as if there wasn't already a reason to build a campus, here's another reason to build that. Plus to tie back briefly just to the leader bonus with an established governor. We know we're going to be able to get to a governor through civic progression. So depending upon when that first governor comes around, there's yet even more science and more culture to go along with what it is that you're doing. It all seems to work really well together, actually. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Korea is uh, science synergy, basically. Go back to where Dan was referring to the leader bonus. Her particular leader bonus is a plus five culture and plus five science in all cities with an established governor. Yeah, that seems to be pretty good overall. I mean, I don't know how often we're going to be able to get governors, but there are what? One, two, three, four. four. There's seven, yeah. So that's 5% more. And so then you might say, well, at the beginning, how much is that really going to be? Because that's, you know, 5% of two or three or four or five. But you start building your cities more and more, and hey, you've got the CO1 and you've got more food to grow your city more, so then you get more science, so long as you're ensuring that you're staying caught up in your housing. You know, hello, granary for even more food and more housing, as an example. That's going to set you up very well, in the particularly into the mid-game, I would say. But you establish that all at the beginning. Yeah, it looks like there's demonstrated two tiers of government buildings that give you a governor. The first one comes out as state workforce, which is pretty early. That is early, and that's on your way to political philosophy besides for your first choices of let's get out of chiefdom already. So (laughs) that's something you're going to be doing anyway, or should be doing anyway. Yeah, the second tier come a little bit later. It just doesn't say when it comes. It just says requires a tier one government building for the tier twos, requires government plaza. Yeah, I don't know when that comes. Yeah, since we don't know where that is in the tech tree yet. And then a historical agenda. We don't know what the actual name of it is, but it's basically, she likes you if you have science. If you're dumb, she doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I mean, it's her civ strength and being played up, so of course she's going to be like, get learned. And that, that shouldn't be an issue for me, I mean, if I'm playing not as Korea, but I find Korea early on, because, again, as NER mentioned, it's now typically the first district I'm going to be constructing is going to be a campus, unless I feel like, oh, there's an early war situation here, in which case I'll just... Build an encampment and take your stuff, which then allows me to do more science after that because I don't want you to start to run away from me. But typically it is a campus, so you encounter me, and I may not be as strong as Korea is with science just because of their inherent abilities, but certainly it should be pretty respectable. So I can get her on my side and keep her on my side pretty quickly until I want to, you know, do away with her. Yeah, I'm just thinking about that early start potential. If you have two iron next to um, a Seowon, that's Eight science from your district right there. That's really good. And then pretty soon you'll be able to, through the civic tree, get to recorded history, and then you could adopt the policy that will double that. Okay, now we're at 16, and that's in one city. <laughs> yeah, drop a couple more cities after that, and ugh. Yeah, and get more governors as you progress through the civic tree and this, this gov- constructing this government plaza, whatever that happens to be. And then you can get even more science and, of course, more culture. It's kind of nice that there's that added culture aspect there, because it's not that you're not going to be doing that. I mean, I find for myself, honestly, when I first settle a city, the first thing I'm constructing is a monument. 
And part of that is because, you know, it could be a monument or a scout, except that um, a scout is a lot cheaper to purchase than a monument is, even though it's comparable amount of turns to complete. So construct that. And then even before you've got a monument in place, you're already getting culture. And then get the monument. It's a cheap building. And you get more culture. Excellent. This looks to be a really strong civilization. I wonder if in competitive multiplayer, some people are going to be like, um, no. <laughs> are we going to have to ban Korea? <laughs> Yeah, you know, when, when it's, it talks about like civilizations that have strong science and dislikes those that do not, I guess there's that kind of caveat in there, right? When you're looking at the victory conditions and you're looking at who's ahead in science, it's, oh, strictly speaking on the list, you're ahead of me in science because you've discovered more technologies than I have. Yeah, but those are might be some earlier cheaper techs that really aren't giving you some kind of advantage militaristically, economically, culturally, etc. So are you really ahead which is probably how they're going to measure it. It's probably going to be based on number of technologies as opposed to beakers for turn. But in any event, if she does get all snarky about that and not like me for science because of that, then I will show her just how technologically superior I am. I have a feeling she's going to hate everybody. Because if she's that strong in science, then nobody's going to be able to keep up. To be fair, that's about on par with the AI so far. I don't like you. She's just picking a different reason than we've normally been hearing lately. We'll just hammer in. We'll just ensure that she doesn't get very many cities. And then she won't have much of a boost. Oh, that's the, your 5% boost to your 5, 10, 15 science from your like one or two cities that you've founded? That's nice. Good luck with that. I'll just, you know, contain you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is a segue to this next civ or not, but why not? Speaking of containment. Queen Wilhelmina of Amsterdam. Yep, we get the Dutch back. We also get the Dutch polder back. Food, production, housing, and food for adjacent polders can only be built on a coast. Their historical agenda is billionaire. They like civilizations that have trade routes that go to her, and she will not be happy if you don't send her one. Civilization ability, I'm going to attempt to pronounce this, and then I'm going to apologize to every Dutchman listening. Agrutrudvieren. Campuses, theater districts, and industrial zones get major adjacency bonuses from rivers, and harbors perform the Polish culture bomb. <laughs> the leader ability is Radio Oranje. Domestic trade routes increase loyalty, while foreign trade routes increase culture. And their unique unit is a, I believe it's a frigate replacement called De Seven Provincien. Yes, it is a frigate replacement. Increased range combat and spat strength. Bonuses to attacking defensible districts. So, destroys cities, basically. Before you could even get the promotion for defense against districts. So, go attack some districts, get a promotion, defend yourself against districts more. And as Candace was saying, all back to take cities. Always take cities. Comes at square rigging when you would otherwise get frigates besides. Penalty against other ships, but as a bonus against defensible districts. <laughs> Help take cities, I guess. The only thing we don't know about is if it's cheaper to construct or not. But even if it's not... It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. <laughs> it shouldn't be cheaper, though, because <laughs> you're already getting lots of advantages from this. But anyway. And then, of course, well... Yeah, the polder was definitely interesting. And it looks like it's you need to have three adjacent. So you can't just go and polder off the entire coast. Yeah, it's got to be constructed in coastal waters with at least three adjacent land tiles, none of which can be hills. So if you have a bay or an inlet, then you can uh, go and polder it out. Yeah, because you can't have adjacent polders. So, and, and each one of those improvements is 0.5 housing to go along with the plus two food. So that's actually also very helpful. It's not, hey, we've got all this food, but we can't grow our population, so it's just riding in the fields. 
It's also super helpful because you use up the mostly useless coast tiles versus the land tiles I go and use to build districts. Elsewise, kind of going back over here, okay, the leader ability, if it's increasing culture, then I'm assuming it's at least plus one per turn for the existence of that trade route, which may or may not be impacted by other variables. But I really don't know how to compare that right now to the domestic trade route ability, which increases loyalty because we don't have that uh, mechanic yet. So culture sounds good, but maybe loyalty is better either full stop or situationally, whatever it is, just like with anything, I just hope it's not, oh, you always want to have a foreign trade route as the Netherlands because it's better than the other. Yeah, but you always do want to have those nice foreign trade routes to the Netherlands because she likes you. Yeah. And I think that actually might be the first agenda that actually makes someone like you instead of the usual where it seems to make everyone dislike you. Well, sure, I would love to have a trade route with her so then I can construct a road to her capital so I can move my units more quickly along the squasher. But hey, if she likes that idea, then I'm all for it too. And she won't see it coming. Ha <laughs> Squish. The third civilization for the Rise and Fall expansion to be announced is... Sending a trade route to Wilhelmina and her capital because it's good for him. And by that, I mean it's Mongolia. It's led by Genghis Khan. I mean, it's appropriate that we say that you're replacing the Mian team this time, NER, because this Phil would be all over this, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> also, the requisite should have been in the game upon release, better late than never, perhaps, question mark, something, something. Anyway, continue. <laughs> Their unique ability is the uh, OR2. I think I pronounced that one correctly. When you send a trade route, you immediately create a trading post. You get a bonus uh, tier of diplomatic visibility for having a trading post with any city that civilization controls. And for every level of diplomatic visibility, your units get plus three to combat strength for each level. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's that's going to be fun. <laughs> like, okay, trade route immediately create a trading post, which of course you would normally only get that trading post once the trade route actually completed, but you get that immediately upon creating it, and then you get the increase in diplomatic visibility and the combat bonus for each level of diplomatic visibility. Perhaps, maybe, why don't you go ahead and then once you complete the trade route, like let it run its course over the 20 turns or whatever, then maybe you get an increase in diplomatic visibility along with a combat bonus for each level of diplomatic visibility. So I guess if you're not playing as Mongolia, you better be watching for those trade routes. It's historically accurate. They were good at spying. Yeah. But to say, I feel kind of awkward that Mongolia is better at doing the whole spying thing than the culture that's based around spying, namely France. So France isn't a culture based on spying. It's just that they're that Catherine's ability is about spying. That's so. fair. Everything in France is pretty much spies or something to do with spies and their chateaus. Back to Mongolia. Their unique building is the Ordu. It's a stable replacement. It's looks to be exactly the same as a stable, except plus one movement to cavalry units built there. It's good. I'm not really super excited about it, but it's pretty good. The bonus movement is much better in uh, Civ 6 because of uh, all the terrain penalties over Civ 5, but... Yeah, I mean, cavalry units, like, I mean, right now, hey, maybe this will change with the Rise and Fall expansion, but how often do I construct such units? Uh, not that often. 1.337774 times 10 to the 0. <laughs> <laughs> So their leader ability on Genghis is the Mongol Horde. Plus three combat strength for cavalry and a chance to capture defeated cavalry. So yeah, they're good at cavalry. I don't know if you're seeing a theme here, but um, <laughs> it involves cavalry. I, no. I know, right? Mongols and horses? What? Yep. Uh, and their that... unique unit is the uh, Keshig. It's the same cost as the knight, 
It's less strong. It's got a melee 30 and a range 40 versus a melee of 48, but they get plus one movement. Uh, and the fact that they get a range attack of two tiles is actually surprisingly good, I think. Mm, as a Civilization Four player, I'm like, wait, that's Kashig and not Kashik? <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, they I keep changing how they spell. Wrong. I've noticed that spellings have changed quite a bit because Karakorum used to be K's as well in Civ yeah. Four. I think that's more of a problem with trying to translate different character sets. Any mounted unit's ability to move in and attack and then withdraw is definitely going to be helpful to getting rid of the uh, Carpet of Doom, uh, which would then, of course, allow you to go in and take cities. Uh, Of course, assuming that you're on any kind of decent landmass that (laughs) has land, (laughs) so there's actually room to move these units around. But yeah, there's definitely a a speed factor involved here between all the stuff about the cavalry and then the immediately creating things and the immediately gaining things upon trade routes. So while I don't feel like I want to play with that first as compared to, say, Korea, I think there's enough to differentiate this from other civilizations that it could be, it could be quite strong. Yeah, I feel like the best tactic that I'm going to use against Mongolia is actually just the Carpet of Doom, just because they're like, I move everywhere. And you're just like, okay, cool. Guess what? I have like 41 pikemen who are all in this giant six by six block of nothing but pikemen. And that's going to be about it. All that movement isn't going to do them any use because I have a wall of pikemen. I don't know. Be interesting playing against them or with them. I kind of wish they had something that wasn't all military, but that also matches a Civ, so... And we knew from the beginning when Rise and Fall was announced there were going to be eight civilizations but nine new leaders, so here's the new leader to go along with an existing civilization in the game. A new Indian leader from the nation of India, Chandragupta. He doesn't like it when there are borders with him. He hates people who are on his borders. So that's going to be problematic. His (laughs) leader of... (laughs) i'm already thinking hey you forward settled me oh now you don't like me because i border you wait what um but that's your fault dude yeah and it gets even better because his ability is arthrashastra and it allows him to declare wars of territorial expansion before you normally get the cb don't we don't really know exactly what that means maybe right away i don't know and movement and strength bonuses for combat units at the start of a war of territorial expansion. Yeah, so remember that this is India, and the only thing that is changing here is the historical agenda and leader ability. They still have the Varu, for example. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So it already has a melee strength of 40. It reduces the combat strength of adjacent enemy units by minus 5, and now it says plus movement and strength, so I, I don't know. That much more than 40, we don't know how much. But if it increases the movement, that's at least a three-movement Varu now. Uh, hmm. <laughs> Yikes. Plus, if they can declare a War of Territorial Expansion earlier, then they'll get less Warmonger penalty, which means that they would be able to do this for longer than having to worry about amenity situations, for example, and issues. So, yeah, that could definitely be a problem, which, as you kind of segued there, Candice, does not like bordering nations. So it's not going to take much for this individual to go to war. Yeah, it says that it's plus five combat strength for the War of Territory expansion. So that's basically an effective 50 strength of the Varu. Right, between their plus five and then the minus five from the uh, adjacent enemy unit loss. Ooh, okay, there you go. 25% (laughs) increase. Yeah. 
The elephants are busy uh, being all stompy. <laughs> stompy stampy. So the real question is, is he a fan of nukes? Well, <laughs> boy, if you thought Gandhi liked to drop a nuke on your head, this guy. Borders are touching me. Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to when there's both a Gandhi India and uh, this gentleman's India. And then we can actually see just how much they like the nukes on each other. <laughs> yeah, we're going to call out the Fallout mod. Speaking of Fallout, and we'll get to this later, but next Civ. That's an excellent uh, segue, actually. Yeah, next Civ is the Cree. They are led by Poundmaker. They have a unique ability, Nihitha, I think I pronounced that correctly. If I didn't, my apologies. That gives plus one trade route capacity, free trader at pottery, and they get to grab free tiles when their traders move into them. I know Dan is super excited about that because he hears trade route and <laughs> like a dog in the dog whistle. Oh my gosh. Not only do you get the plus one trade route capacity, but you get the free trader to go with it at pottery. And it's not that far until currency. So there's another trade route capacity. And then you can also claim territory but yeah, as long as it's in three tiles of the Cree city center and when a trader first moves through them so that means you're going to be grabbing that land relatively quickly because that trader assuming you send it somewhere is actually going to of course start moving right away turn rollover so that's pretty nice actually is this going to be an automated thing is our traders go between the Cree cities or do we have to manually do that well, seeing as how the trader itself is automated, I would say that when the trader first moves through them, it will claim that territory based on the path that uh -huh. it's going to take between those cities. So you can be like, hey, you're expanding your territory. Uh, I'm I'm just trading with you. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be great when you have to send an internal trade route when I start a new city just for that one time, at least, to get it to start up faster. So then, oh, look, I'm going to get a bunch of extra tiles while I'm doing it. Oh, man. And then tie this right with India, who, again, does not like bordering nations. And this is how Cree and, and expand <laughs> oh, their God. borders. Oh, against India. That's going to be pretty. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. The games are already writing themselves. And it's, <laughs> the expansion's not even out yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my biggest concern with it actually is that I'm worried about not being able to go and send a trade route anywhere. I just need to make sure I scout pretty well, which segues into the unique unit, the uh, Okithitha. I got that one wrong. So my it's called the Oki. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. It's a double strength scout with the same power as a warrior, and it also starts with a free promotion. So that's really strong. Having cheaper warriors that have bonus movement and a free promotion, that's a really good starting unit right there. And remember that free promotion is unrestricted movement in either hills or in forests. Oh, yeah, that's going to be really strong. So you at least get the scouts to go and um, send your traders to, hopefully. Unless you get super unlucky and you start on a tiny little island all by yourself, in which case you get to be sad. They get a, an improvement. Let's see how I get this one wrong, too. Uh, Mechawap? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> it unlocks at pottery. It's plus one production, plus half a housing. And plus one gold per adjacent luxury resource, plus half of food per adjacent bonus resource. So just find your resources, drop it between them, and you get bonuses to food, housing, and gold for each resource. And plus one production is a flat bonus. So yeah, that seems really strong too. And available early at Pottery, which you'd want to be thinking about anyway for Granary and perhaps Watermill if you've got cities on a river, if you're any sieve. 
And then you're also getting the plus one trade row capacity and free trader at Pottery. So, and it's like, oh, I don't have to construct a trader unit now. I can construct another builder and start with these tile improvements. Wow. Yeah, especially because you build a builder and you build a bunch of them and then you get more production to build more builders. And before you know it, you're on this endless spiral of builders and improvements. So I guess, again, because that can provide food when adjacent to a bonus resource, if you've got planes adjacent to that bonus resource and you put this unique improvement down, then that's also a three-food plane style. Yeah. So it really changes your perspective on how good or bad you think your starting location is. Nice. Yeah, look for those resources. Hope to get a cattle so you can build uh, Great Zimbabwe. Hey, and that'll go along with your plus one trade route capacity, too. Hey, I get another trade route. Yeah. And guess what? There's another 20-plus gold a turn. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tons of gold from both the improvement and Great Zimbabwe, plus a bunch of production. So Poundmaker's leader ability is favorable terms. Uh, alliances give shared visibility for everyone. And the more important part in my mind is trade routes are better. They give you plus one food, one gold per camp or pasture in the city that you send a trade route to. That's uh, really good. It comes down really early, especially because camps and pastures both come out really early. And you just get piles of food and gold early. Seems to be a pretty common theme for this sieve. Get your trade routes, get them early, and they'll be really good for you. Put all these stacks of deer haunches. <laughs> yep. So instead of starting the city for my capital, I should be sending the settler over to the new city and having them come from the opposite direction. Because I would probably have more camps or pastures at the capital early on. Yeah, I don't see anything about it being a foreign city, so internal trade routes also seem really good for it. Yeah. Take some cities from Russia, you'll get lots of camps. <laughs> and then last but not least, uh, in terms of the sixth of eight new, the kind of, I'm wait, sorry, what civilization is this question mark that has <laughs> been raised a lot since this uh, civ was announced? Tamar of Georgia. Not Georgia, where Atlanta is, Georgia, where Tbilisi is. So yeah, she has the historical agenda related to liking walls, Narikala Fortress. She likes it when you build walls, and she likes it when you build walls. She likes walls. <clears throat> also walls. Walls, yes. walls, 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 and walls, walls. It's um I don't know, it just it it seems odd. <laughs> yes. In some way. I, I just <sighs> Well, you gotta hold off the Ottoman somehow. <laughs> I like it when you use protection. Lol. Like I just I don't know. <laughs> Like, what, what am I supposed yeah, to take away but, from this? <laughs> yeah, but also, it's specifically to one type of development. You know, it's not anything else. It's not like Korea's like, I like it when you build science things. But I guess because walls are the only defense thing, quote unquote, we have. Pretty much. I guess you could say build encampments, but that would still make her the only one that would be like, oh, I like that you built encampments. It's not like she's got some bonus for sending trade routes to somebody, or they've got the increased visibility by being in an alliance with somebody, in which case, okay, it's more likely that you're going to still be around to be my ally to get this benefit. Like, what is she getting out of this? Probably nothing, actually. Um, <laughs> Less than nothing. Yeah, what does she get out of the fact that we have walls? <laughs> yeah, it looks like a flavor to me, basically. But that's not the only Civ that has a flavor thing like that, I don't think. No, but I, I, I'm really scratching my head to think about yeah, this was just the, kind of stands out somehow. When you talk about flavor, and everyone knows that I love Star Trek, and I think of Star Trek The Next Generation and, and the android who tries, I think it was prune juice for the first time, and oh, it tastes awful. Yes, I would like more. That sounds like the flavor for her, which is, oh my gosh, I love the fact that you have walls. So when I declare war on you, 
<laughs> you're more likely to put up a good fight. Yeah. I think that this kind of gives the indication that if you build walls, she'll like you. And if you don't build walls, she won't like you and declare war on you because you have no walls. So I think it just helps her out. Well, except that right now, the historical agenda does not have the converse dislikes you if you don't build walls as compared to what we've had documented for Korea. Yeah. So it's also an incomplete flavor, too, an incomplete <laughs> flavor profile. I'm neutral if you don't have walls, but if you do have walls, bonus. Yeah. It's like, um, <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> we'll set that aside for now, girlfriend, and we'll move on to your some other ability. <laughs> okay, your leader ability, strength and unity. At the start of a golden age, you get to make a golden age and a normal age dedication. Yeah, there's a couple listed already. There's free inquiry, which is a normal age, plus one error score, which I'm not sure what it does. Every time you trigger Eureka, and uh, you also get to one error score for constructing a building that provides science as a base yield. And also has a different ability on the Golden Age, for example. Uh, Eureka is an extra 10% technology costs, and Commercial Hub and Harbor District School adjacency bonus provides science as well. So it looks like you get a whole bunch of cool things for starting an age and doing well in that age. It looks like a choice that you make every time you enter a new age, and you get bonuses to try and um, get through your age and do stuff well at that age. As I look at the golden instances as a related aside to and tying into the Georgian sieve, I see plus two movement for missionaries, apostles, and inquisitors, plus three starting population for cities settled on a different continent other than your first city. Traders cannot be plundered. Well, that sounds like maybe a change to one of the city-states ability then, because there's the water-based ones that can't be plundered by some commercial city-state, forgetting the name right now. Uh, inspirations provide an additional 10% of civic costs, or my favorite from the Golden Age, plus two movement for all builders. And builders and settlers are 30% cheaper to purchase with faith in gold. Okay, well, actually, just that alone, if you start a Golden Age and you get to make a Golden Age and a Normal Age dedication, then, okay, that can be powerful. That should be powerful. She's got something. We'll just ignore this historical agenda. And uh, I don't know if this completely makes up for the oddity that is historical agenda, but it certainly doesn't take away from the sieve. This actually makes the sieve sound a little decent. Well, here's something that'll make it sound even more decent. Unique unit is Kev Soretti, which is a swordsman replacement that gets a bonus on hills. I don't think we know when it becomes available or if it is any different than the normal starting time for this particular unit, but I believe it has a higher strength than normal as well. Yeah. Plus seven combat strength in the hill terrain. Ignores hill movement penalties. The timeline in the first look video shows an event for the first of these units being built in the classical era, and it's shown fighting against a Mongol swordsman. Okay, so if it comes early enough to compete with other swordsmen, you know, the replacement, then okay. Yeah, it's plus four uh, strength already, and then the plus seven combat strength for bonus and hill, and ignoring hill uh, movement penalties is, makes it actually pretty good. The unique building, Tishki, replaces the Renaissance wall, less cost and more faith. Pretty mediocre because nobody builds Renaissance walls. I don't know anybody who even builds medieval walls except with a great engineer. Yeah, if they got rid of that, uh, I'm forgetting now, that Civic that gives you the plus 200 strength automatically in all of your cities, then you might actually bother to build such walls, in which case a replacement wall, presumably a better wall, yes, cost less and gives faith, might actually be worthwhile. So I will say that's less a negative against the Civ and more about the mechanics in relation to walls. But at the same time, I think if you're if you're far enough along in technology and you've got units to field, plus you've got a unit in the city, plus you've got existing wall if you're really looking for that bombard capability, which of course is, you know, a very added good capability, 
then I don't really think it matters that it comes sooner or later in the end. You're still not going to build these walls because why don't you just go out and construct a unit that could actually both be on the uh, offensive as well as the defensive and move around the map. Yeah, it's a problem with the scaling overall. Once you have a wall, further walls don't do nearly as much because your city strength tracks with the strength of the best unit that you've made so far. So you get to just have your cities get better at defending themselves just for not building walls. The civilization ability. Glory of the world, kingdom, and faith. 100% faith for 10 turns after you declare a protector at war. And city-states get bonus envoys if they follow your religion. But there's nothing inherent to help you get a religion or boost your religion. So I guess... I mean, okay, if you are playing as Georgia, then maybe that is an incentive. Except in order to declare a protectorate war, that's got to be a city-state that you are the suzerain of that has been declared on by another civilization. So that's a lot of things to line up to be of use to you. Yeah, could be better, but it's not. That ability actually looks pretty good overall, just because of the double envoys. You start off with early holy sites, then just start spreading your religion to all of the local city-states and double envoys to get to suzerain for a whole lot of them. There isn't any one of these civilizations that I feel like, no, I don't want to play it, but just because of the, I'm not exactly certain what we're going for here exactly, I'll put Georgia at the bottom, but it's not like, oh, I never want to play Georgia. It got better as we explained it further, as we started looking at the other things. There's just this other thing that's just kind of, well, it doesn't really take away from them, it just doesn't seem to do much of anything for them. Yeah, I feel like Georgia's a little lackluster. I feel like Georgia might be really good based on the uh, dedication bonuses for Golden Ages. If they end up being really good, Georgia itself could be really good. But I think that's still an open question for them. Also, the question is, is, so what do you have to do to get to a Golden Age? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. And then, of course, there's also the, and I know this is kind of, you know, going back to the well, just like the user interface has its issues, which is, so the artificial intelligence controlling Georgia are they going to do a good job of getting to the Golden Age? And are they going to do well with the historical agenda and actually prioritize going after civs that they don't like because they don't have walls, or at least don't like as much because they don't have walls, and then can use their unique unit, etc., etc.? Oh, yeah. And the Vanilla Civilization updates to come from the Rise and Fall expansion. America, changing its Founding Father bonus, it will now replace one diplomacy slot with a wildcard slot, which is preferable, seeing as how... Well, wild card slot, I don't think most people choose to use a diplomacy policy for that. And Sumeria, get bonus alliance points when in a joint war. Some miscellaneous changes, and one of these miscellaneous changes, we're going to get a new spy mission, remove a governor from city and return him or him or her to the unassigned pool. Ooh. Spies now have missions to reduce loyalty in foreign cities, and again, we'll get into loyalty more in the next time. Additional trade routes are now unlocked with the market and lighthouse instead of with the base districts, which sounds very, very significant, actually. Oh, yeah, I can't just spam harbors. (laughs) Yeah, or spam commercial districts. Oh, for additional (laughs) trade routes. No! Yes! That's actually probably a good thing because we've talked about why do production in this game when you can go gold upon gold upon gold and, you know, more gold. All civilizations now get a combat bonus for their units versus a particular civilization based on their diplomatic visibility with that civilization. And map generation has been modified to increase separation between major civilizations. Doesn't help with the city-state thing. But uh, maybe that'll be incidental. 
still. The true power to shape this world has always lain in your hands. We do still have a couple of things to talk about in terms of civilizations, and that's uh, in terms of some controversies that have arisen with regards to the first look. While most attention has been given to the Cree, there was and is some controversy that came out first, because Korea was announced first, and so there has been mm, some of that. We need Q&L for this. Yeah, we need our resident expert to tell us whether this is good or bad. It was not because Korea was included in the game or anything to do with their abilities, but rather specifically the leader. When the first look was announced, the international version of that first look on the Sid Meier's Civilization YouTube channel has considerably more dislikes than likes as compared to the Western version. Two comments include, Utterly incompetent, miserable leader, what the hell for Axis, and the secondary consideration, she doesn't even look Korean. I'm not going to focus on the looking or not looking as Korean, but rather about the inclusion of this woman who some people have chalked up to the notion of political correctness and needing to have more female leaders in the game for appearances purposes. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Just going to point out that they also said that the person who followed her was also a woman and that she apparently did better than Sutok or whatever her name is did. Just for some historical context, because I did just a little bit of research... At the time, Korea, of what we know now as Korea, was split into three different kingdoms. She was the leader of one, and she was the first reigning queen of this particular kingdom. Canis, yes, pointed out that the next leader also happened to be female. Amongst the earliest female sovereigns recorded in Eastern Asian history, besides pros... She gained their trust by letting her know of her new policy, saying that she was going to give everyone a fair treatment. She sent officials to different parts of her kingdom to help those people in need, especially widows, orphans, and old people. And she also announced a whole year of tax exemptions for the peasants in the second year. She sought an alliance with the third Korean kingdom when it was being threatened by the second Korean kingdom. And she also strengthened ties with China did this through sending emissaries and scholars to China. She's also credited with the initial formation of the Korean uh, chivalric code and also sent young Koreans to China for martial arts training. However, there was the war between her kingdom and this second kingdom that continued throughout her 27-year reign, and they lost a lot of land. Her people grew anxious, and they lost their faith in her, of course. She also decided one year to build the highest temple at the time, which received lots of complaints from her people, so really, I guess it kind of comes down to balancing the pros and the cons in terms of her as a leader, except she's certainly noteworthy, whether it's 
good or bad, and I'm pretty sure you can say that about any particular leader. So quite frankly, I kind of look at this decision and it's like damned if you do and damned if you don't in terms of choosing this leader or somebody else. Well, we did have Montezuma II, who lost to the Spanish, so... Yeah, and it's and if they were going for the, oh, it's about political correctness, well, they didn't pick somebody that would be equivalent to, like, a few months. They weren't looking to cherry-pick somebody out of history. They went for somebody who actually had some historical things going on, also happened to be female, even if it's not the actual Korean's favoritist leader. You they know, made a I TV mean, series out of her life, so she's a yeah. famous somewhat. And part of that was actually because she really had to push to become the leader because her father was actually going to give it to her son-in-law because he didn't have any sons himself. And she said, no, I challenge you. I want to be the leader. And she managed to curry the favor of the people and the king ultimately felt compelled to hand it to her. I mean, it's not something that had happened before in that particular kingdom. It wasn't something that you couldn't do. It's just not something that was done, and it surprised a lot of people. So between that and managing to convince the people and then convincing the reigning monarch to say, okay, fine, I'm going to go ahead and change my mind, Yeah, that's also in her favor, I would say. Well, one could also point out that you know, America has Teddy Roosevelt, and Teddy Roosevelt wasn't the best president either. I mean, he was popular, but he had a lot of uh, things that he was um, doing that were pretty questionable constitutionally. So there's always a dichotomy of good and bad with any world leader. So I think we should just all calm down a bit. And then we get to the Cree controversy, which has made national headlines in Canada. Quoting specifically from a CBC article, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, in part because the head of the Cree Nation spoke to the CBC. He said he was initially excited about the inclusion, the fact that, oh, the Cree are going to be a civilization in the game, and you've made Poundmaker the leader, except it was the representation of the Cree and Poundmaker that caused the objection. Quote, perpetuates this myth that First Nations had similar values that the colonial culture has, and that as one of conquering other peoples and accessing their land. This is totally not in concert with our traditional ways and worldview. Unquote. He also said that video game publisher 2K Games should have formally approached the community, offering tobacco and speaking to elders. He says no one from the First Nation was consulted about the project. I get the not being approached thing to some degree, but that it perpetuates the myth that this First Nation had similar values that the colonial culture has. When we review the historical agenda, the civilization ability, the unique unit, the unique tile improvement, and the leader ability, I'm not seeing that connection. The connection simply being then that civilization is a game that has always has and continues to has a domination means of victory condition, even though that's not the only form of victory condition number one. But more specifically, there is nothing that tells me in terms of how the Cree have been implemented in the game that has anything to do with conquering other peoples and accessing their land. So I kind of take this as we're more displeased that you didn't approach us first as compared to the we're not happy with how you implemented it. Yeah, I was actually pretty uh, happy to see Cree being a very pacifistic nation overall. All their bonuses are trading and exploring and... Alliances. Yeah, it would be one thing if it's they had all of Mongolia's abilities, for example, where Mongolia has nothing but military abilities. I'll say something that might be considered controversial, but I would say that pretty much every society in the history of mankind has had similar values. Raise a family, protect your children, make some money, be happy. 
I don't imagine the Cree were any different in that sense, and I don't think they are now. So giving them the opportunity to do what every other civilization in history has done is no different than what should be done. Because if we were excluding them, there'd be even more complaints. And it should also be noted that these objections have been raised by the head of the Cree Nation, not the Cree Nation entirely. There's still a consultation with elders before it formally contacts the company to say that this is the Cree position on this. This Cree Nation headman, uh, Melton Detutus, also did say that I certainly hope it, it being the Cree being included in Civilization VI, helps more than it hurts the cause, and the cause it be is being referred to, and I also kind of feel like this is tying into why this is a particular issue, is because the Cree Nation is currently working with the Canadian government to formally exonerate Poundmaker for a treason conviction he received after a Northwest Rebellion in 1885. So the timing is that there's there's a political connection to this as well. Conversely, by the way, the gentleman who was responsible for creating the music was Cree. He said that he was kind of taken aback that he and his fellow band members have been criticized for being a part of this project, which included Poundmaker and the depiction of the Cree. And he said, I feel bad. I feel sorry that certain people were offended by this and saw it as a negative. But he says, I don't see anything negative in the video game's depiction of Poundmaker. I'm happy that the Cree music is going to be heard across the globe, thanks to the game. And although I haven't been able to substantiate this yet from another source, it has been reported that this individual who made the music for the Cree in the game is actually the great-grandson of Poundmaker's brother. That would Ooh. be interesting. I've actually heard a sample of that music. It's very, very nice. I mean, I don't know what efforts were made to try to contact the Cree Nation because 2K so far has refused to comment. And quite frankly, I don't blame them for refusing to comment because at this point, quote unquote, what is done is done. And besides, even the person who was complaining, who is the head, and again, it's not the official position, he is saying, well, we're not happy that this was done, but maybe 2K can talk to us now about it. And in fact, maybe it will actually help more than hurt because it is raising the profile of our nation. So even then, I think a lot has been made understandably about the negative, because that's what gives headlines. But there's all these other kind of yeah, but, yeah, but kind of things. So mm, I think in certain respects across a lot of different parties, more is being made out of it than there actually is. But still, you know, it's not every day that a computer game, let alone a strategy game, makes national headlines in a country for controversy for inclusion, because it's like, wait, this isn't about a first-person shooter? What's what's happening right now? Controversy <laughs> for inclusion as opposed to exclusion. You just got to wonder how many people now know of the Shoshone because of Civ 5. Yeah. And now some uh, polycast-related news, starting with the only person on the panel right now who really should be <laughs> responding to feedback on our Christmas special in any way, even though I did on Civilization Fanatic Center. I'm going to give the lead to Mackie here to discuss it here on this episode. Yeah, because a lot of people saw girls playing Civ 3 and thought we were actually going to be playing Civ 3. <laughs> I get that. I get that. You know, I thought it was uh, some sort of next-level thing that you guys were doing. As well, so. <laughs> see? see? 
See, Dan, it's not just it's not just these few people who responded. No, and and so my position, of course, on that is that what caused me to respond to this at all because I didn't respond to the first person that made that reference, but the person disgustipated who said misleading title. <laughs> that was the part that got me to say, oh, okay, I'll just kind of edge in here with my two cents. Respectfully, this is one interpretation, and I maintain not the dominant one for two reasons. First, Civ 3, as was spelled out, Civ space T-H-R-E-E, is not a common naming convention for Civilization 3. But second, the news item accompanying the special also references both previous girls playing Civ specials. And then I said, you know, if you're looking for Civ 3 commentary, uh, our modcast sibling actually did a focus special on it in 2014. But hey, if, if this is quote-unquote controversy or somewhere along the way and it gets more people to listen, then hey, I'm, I'm all for that too. <laughs> like, yeah, more views, yes. You're better off calling it a non-traversy. Pretty much. Yeah, get that uh, wordplay in there. Uberfrog, in addition to thanking us for a great episode, said he found himself agreeing with the panel that he hopes that alliances, which we still haven't heard about much, uh, have a bit more to them than just modified production and research. A truly cooperative way to win would be a much better diplomatic victory than gaming UN votes. Yeah, we would all like that one. And as uh, all of us on this panel, either regular or recurring players on Turncast, where we enjoy cooperative multiplayer, we are so on board with this notion so that we can formally end a game. Not that we dislike our in-house rules, but, you know, we, we did have the ability to formally win back in Civilization for at least some of us. And, you know, it's two Civilizations later, so where is that, by the way? Where'd it go? Bring it back. Hi. Hi. Can, 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 co- cooperative? Yes. Yes. Please. I mean, Civ Five had cooperative, but it was kind of terrible because if everyone chose a different tech, then you just never finished a tech ever. <laughs> yeah, it was like, uh, no. Okay, guys, what are we researching this time? We got to coordinate. Have fun trying to do that in a game where you only have typing chat available. Oi. Oh, yikes. Yeah, I know. Uh, let's see. What was the other one? Shaglia, who forgot which panelist it was. It was Willow, said that she liked Great Person Farming 4. She's interested in making the jump to 6. Play as Russia. Uh, well, she may give it another swing when the expansion comes out. Right now, she's kind of meh about it. Yeah, I mean, she owns Civilization VI, but she hasn't played it in a very, very long time, essentially since like a month or two after the release. So it's, uh, it's just saying, hopefully the expansion pack, even if it's not when it's first released, that at some point coming months, maybe she will dare to try it again, even though, yes, it does mean an additional purchase. But it's not like Civilization VI was her first Civ title either. So no. hopefully it'll be enough, you know, with the history of the game, plus the history with us and those of us that are still playing it, that we could convince her to at least, you know, give it another go. Yeah, that's about all the things that were specifically related to the special, except for somebody, oh, Timothy, who had downloaded it and started playing it. It's like, what is this? Then check the title. Oh, okay, okay. This is, wait, this is Polycast. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Not specific to the girls playing Civ uh, Christmas special, but all the Christmas specials, you do not have your standard music at the beginning. Typically, there's either speech or there's Christmas music that's playing throughout. So it definitely does sound different, intentional. But I also work to have different Christmas music every year, even if sometimes it's maybe at this point it's the same song, but now it's, oh, they're singing instead of it being The dubstep version. Yeah, that it's, it's a different artist or there's actually lyrics to it now or there's not lyrics to it now. I've actually moved away more and more from Christmas music with lyrics in it and more with just straight music in it. So that way it's easier to have it in the background. But uh, anyway, we thank all those who, uh, of course, listen to the Christmas special and up to you, Mackie, for leading the third in the series. So the first girls playing Civ was, wow, this is unique. And then the second time might said it was a coincidence. But now that we have a third, there's a pattern. There's a pattern. 
So the fourth. What was it? Once every five years. <laughs> yep. So the fourth girls playing Civ special. We'll see you in 2022. Uh, you never know. It could be sooner. Oh. But to say you have a 2022. I'm not already, promising Dan? nothing. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288. 7659. That's 4412128 Polly. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series official website at thepolycast.net. The lead designer for Civilization VI, Rise and Fall, is not Ed Beach, who was the lead designer on Civilization VI and both Civilization V expansions. That's actually Anton Stranger, who was the lead systems and gameplay designer on Civilization Beyond Earth. Uh... Now, now, now. Calm down. If that was the first thing I had read before I had read anything about the Rise and Fall expansion, I'd be like, oh, oh dear. But I kind of feel like that he's learned from that experience based on not only what we have seen, but the fact that, you know, Ed Beach does still work at Fraxis. So, uh, you know, it's not Anton, quote-unquote, off on his own. The senior producer, by the way, is Andrew Fredrickson, who was a lead producer for Beyond Earth. I like to think that they've learned some lessons, uh, hard-learned lessons from Civilization Beyond Earth. Beyond Earth, mechanically, was fine. It was just very generic, and that was part of the problem around it. Everyone's expecting Alpha Centauri 2, and the original Alpha Centauri had so much flavor to it. And then that was kind of like, well, this is nice, but... It would end up being kind of bland. It also didn't help that it was being compared to one of the greats, so... Yeah, that, that was, it was a very, very steep hill they were going to have to climb anyway. Yeah. Yeah, to me, playing Civilization Beyond Earth was like chewing gum. At the start, pretty good flavor. And then the more you chewed, yeah, the less uh, appealing it became. And then you wanted to spit it out and throw it away. Was that too harsh? A little bit. <laughs> it was, it's not a bad game. It just... Eh. I know we have a little bit of fun poking at things. Oh, no, is this Beyond Earth? But no, 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 no. They were doing a good job. It just didn't come together quite the way everyone had wanted. I feel sometimes we're a little unfair about that. And you yeah. can tell from the interviews from the guys that did Beyond Earth, they really enjoyed what they were doing and behind it. And then everybody coming around and crapping on it has to be like the worst feeling. Thus far, even though it has been said from the beginning who the lead designer is, who the lead producer is, and their connection so far in the Civilization series. I have not seen a negative reaction to, oh, it's this person, and so therefore I'm going to question this announcement and this part of the announcement and this part of the announcement. Hopefully the, again, lessons have been learned from Beyond Earth and are now being applied well in Civilization VI. We will definitely be talking about mostly new systems on the next episode for Civilization VI Rise and Fall. This has been episode 298 of Polycast. I'm Makalua. With me as usual, Dan Quick. We rise from the fall. And our guest co-host this round, uh, New Earth Relic. I am apparently uh, being Phil. Your UI sucks. <laughs> and Canis Albinus. Oh, hi. Uh, I forgot. What? 
I mean, is this the way it goes? Um, darn. Yeah, that sounds like me most of the time, honestly. I was actually trying to quote Lisa, but okay. (laughs) 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 Record date January 13th, 2018. Sid Meier's Civilization VI Rise and Fall Clips, copyright 2K Games. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.